instead of being like a bespoke suit that you would order maybe from Brooks Brothers, it's more like a really well-made set of, of football pads. It's kinetic sculpture, it's, it's ocature, it's all of these things rolled into this amazing, innovative, metallic surface. Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. And I'm Michael Diaz-Griffith. And Michael, this is a bittersweet moment for me, uh, because although I certainly hope to have you back on Curious Objects in the future, um, this is your last episode with me uh, formally as as co-host. It is, and it is bittersweet. Bitter because I've enjoyed being co-host so much and learning with you and with our audience but sweet because I'm moving on to a full-time role with Sir John Soane's Museum Foundation, a really fabulous organization based surprisingly in New York. And uh, while I'll still be able to do podcasts and hang out with you in the context of the New Antiquarians, Ben, I've got a really big job to do. So I'm trying to arrange my schedule so that I can get it all done. And uh, unfortunately, this is one area where, you know, from my perspective, I know I'm not as needed as in other areas, (laughs) because you've got such a fantastic (laughs) handle on this podcast that that you created. So well, that's very kind. But it's it really it's, um, you've brought a a fantastic energy to curious objects that I've been very grateful for. And it's been a lot of fun working with you. Although I have to say, as as you mentioned, you and I are going to have plenty of opportunities to work together um, on curious objects, uh, again, I hope, but certainly with the, the new antiquarians, which for listeners who aren't aware, this is an organization we started to try and uh, expand the tent of uh, people, <laughs> particularly young people uh, interested in uh, art and decorative art. Um, so we're uh, we're doing plenty of events with the New Antiquarians, including one next week with, with Christie's. And we'll be very um, active. Yeah, very active in that fold. And, and I hope to return to the podcast to spread the word about the Sone Museum in America. So yeah, and why don't you, uh, can, can you tell us just a, a little bit about the Sone Museum and the foundation and, and uh, the work that you guys are doing? Sure. Well, well, John Sone was an architect who lived in the 18th and 19th centuries. And he was a neoclassicist, but a very inventive one, known for his uh, particularly attenuated, light, and creative manner of uh, designing both residential spaces, but but more importantly, great public spaces, including the Bank of England, which was sadly demolished. Um, But he did something that really extended his legacy beyond all of those, uh, those buildings. He constructed a museum in Lincoln's Inn Fields in Hoban in London. And I'm sure some of our listeners have been there. I I certainly spent a great deal of time there as a grad student in London. Um, and, and he negotiated through a private act of parliament that, uh, this building, which, which contained his private apartments, uh, where he lived with, with his wife, but also a museum that he built during his lifetime and outfitted with, uh, his collections, they were left to the nation in perpetuity. And the act stipulated that, uh, you know, the collections would be, you know, passed on to board of trustees acting on behalf of the nation. 
and that all would be preserved as nearly as possible in the state they were at during Soane's lifetime. So the, the museum is a fascinating sort of time capsule, but it's also, um, you know, a very creative institution that works hard to interpret the material in the building as well as um, exhibitions that come to the building in a very forward-looking way. So I love what they do and the foundation in America. It, we support the museum and uh, interact with them through fundraising and all sorts of interesting initiatives. But we also mount our own programming in New York and hopefully soon regionally from a kind of Sonian perspective. So I'll, I, you'll hear much more about this. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't wait to see what you do with the organization. It's it's super exciting um, to see you doing this. It's it's a an incredible position for you to be taking and uh, huge congratulations to you on that, even if it means we're losing you on Curious Objects. Um, speaking of which, uh, today's, let's, let's get to chatting a little about today's Curious Object. Yeah, um, which... I love this interview, Ben. It's so good. Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, so I, I talked, this was actually before the shutdown. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Jessica Kirchhoff, who is a, a specialist in arms and armor, um, which is a subject that gets my, my inner high schooler very excited. Um, but she's, uh, when we talked, she was actually at the Metropolitan Museum, but she's since uh, moved to the Detroit Institute of Art, um, a sad loss for the city of New York. Um, but we we had the chance to talk about this group of suits of armor um, that um, really opened up for me new a, a sort of a new way of thinking about um, objects and the way that they move through history. Yeah, this this sort of perspective on quote longitudinal history is fascinating to me, and you know while I do think even on some of our episodes, we've thought about the journeys that objects take through time. You know, colonial Williamsburg, we often think about in the context of the 18th century, the 1930s, and today, for example. But <clears throat> we don't always do that. And I think we spend a lot of time thinking very carefully and closely about how to interpret objects in the present so that their relevance is, is evident to newer audiences. Uh, at least that's been a focus for you and me, right, Ben? But yeah, it's it's important to think about the journeys that objects take and all of the different ways they've been interpreted and received through time. And this interview does a really good job of highlighting that. Yeah, it can really help bring objects to life when you think about them existing, not just at, at the moment that they were made and today, but at all the moments in between. Um, and that can also be a little overwhelming. But in the case of these suits of armor, you know, they, they play so many different symbolic roles um, through the generations. And it was really fascinating for me to, to dive into that with Jessica. So let's, um, without further ado, let's uh, dive into that interview. Um, but thank you so much, Michael. Again, it's been a, a huge pleasure having you on, on Curious Objects. And um, I, I hope we'll have you back on in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure and an honor. And to all of our listeners, thank you for letting me go on this podcast journey with you. I'll see you soon. Since 1805, Freeman's has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's celebrates Pennsylvania's longstanding legacy as a major and influential artistic region and is committed to the craftsmanship and artistry of the Commonwealth. 
Whether it is a conoid bench by George Nagashima, a Chippendale-carved side chair by Thomas Affleck, or a painting by Fern Coppage, Freeman's is renowned for selling works by important artists and designers from the Quaker state. Freeman's is always looking for and able to evaluate fine art, furniture, and decorative arts made and used in Pennsylvania from the earliest colonial period through the 20th century. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are. Jessica Kirchhoff, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. And um, we're going to talk today about a, a group of works of armor, um, which is something we've never talked about on this podcast before, and I'm really excited to, to dive into it, especially because there's an unusually interesting history behind this set. But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are. You're starting uh, right now a job at the Detroit Institute of Art, which is very exciting. But the path you took to get there is totally fascinating. And I, I think listeners would be interested to know how you developed your interest in, in arms and armor. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a, it's a nonlinear pathway. <laughs> um, so, so as we've mentioned in conversation, I was, I was born in the Missouri Ozarks, which is not, um, a, a place that most people associate with, with high culture or, or particularly with central European arms and armor. You can say um, that. <laughs> but my, my background was really as a maker. So, so from a very young age, I was an artist. I was interested in jewelry making and metalwork. Um, I attended the Missouri Fine Arts Academy in the last year of high school. Um, I worked in non-ferrous metals, so in silver, gold, copper, as well as in ferrous metals. Um, I was trained as a ferrous welder. Metals ferrous metals being iron. Metals iron. Yes. Um, so, so iron, steel. Um, I was actually trained as a welder. I still, I think, have an OSHA certification <laughs> in welding. Um, and also as a glass blower. So, so I had this, this hand in, in sort of the, the flammable aspects of art making for, for a long time. <laughs> yes. and, and as I considered my future and, and considered you know, applying to MFA programs in sculpture or glass or metal, it became evident to me that all of my artwork was essentially about art history, which had been my second major throughout my collegiate experience and, and really the, the source of inspiration for most of the objects that I made. Um, and so I realized that art history was my true path. And the first time I was able to touch and handle an, an object of armor, a martial object, um, I really was immediately enchanted. Um, what was it? It was a breastplate, and it was actually a revivalist breastplate. So it was a breastplate that was made probably in the mid-19th century by a guy named Aaron Schmidt in Munich. Um, and he was a dealer and maker of historicizing armors. Um, he actually had access to many of the works in the Kunsthistorisch Museum. So he made these amazing replicas of really some of the greatest works of the armors art ever produced at the end of the 15th century. Um, one of these somehow made it to Kansas. And so as a young graduate student, I was able to handle and examine this object, which led me down a trail to, to Vienna, to the Kunsthistorische Museum, to the source material. Wow. Um, and, you know, I never, never looked back. It was, it was love at first sight with arms and armor. Um, you know, it's kinetic sculpture, it's, it's ocature, it's all of these things um, sort of rolled into this amazing, innovative, metallic surface. So, yeah. yeah. Right. So you've, yeah. you've now become a scholar of um, uh, arms and armor specifically. And um, what we're 
talking about today is this incredible group that you've been working with and studying at the Metropolitan Museum. And um, uh, there's an example from this collection at uh, Detroit as well. Um, and uh, what interested me about this group when you uh, started to tell me about them is that they have this life um, that is not, you know, we were just talking before we started here about um, how objects are sometimes treated as having been made at one point in time and then uh, being experienced at another point in time today and having very little um, life in between then and now. But um, with this particular group of armor, um, we actually know a fair bit about what's happened between the day they were made and today. And um, that uh, course of events actually sheds light on um, a lot of interesting facets of history. So I'm excited to dive in. Um, so t tell us, just for starters, what uh, what are these objects and when were they made? Yeah, so the objects that I've been working on recently um, really is part of, of my mandate at the Metropolitan Museum to, to flesh out some of the provenance histories of, of the objects in the collections of arms and armor, about 14,000 objects. Um, but, <laughs> but within that body of work, these armors really stood out to me because they have such a well-documented past. And there are so many named individuals, so many personae with which we can associate those armors. And um, these are armors that were made for a, a form of knightly sport, a form of tournament called the Balian Renin, um, which is a form of Renin. Um, the Renin is essentially the joust of war. So it's a joust between two combatants fought across a, a tilt barrier, a wall, using sharpened lances. The joust of war always uses sharpened lances, so it's really, it's a kind of sport. It's not, it's not yeah. combat in earnest, but, but it is very dangerous. And, and that name, joust of war, acknowledges the danger of, of jousting with sharp lances. Yeah. So give me a little more context here. So the, the joust is distinct from combat, as you say, it's, it's an athletic event and a performative event. Mm -hmm. But there were real stakes. I mean, people were injured and, and killed. Um, what um, the, These armors were specialized for this sport. They weren't meant to be used in real battle, is that right? That's absolutely correct. And um, it's interesting because you bring up the sort of the physical stakes of, of knightly sports such as the joust. And these armors that we're talking about were actually made during the 1580s. So they're very late in the lifetime of what we consider the tournament, um, the popularity of the tournament at the European court. And when we think about the, the rise and fall, if you will, of jousting as a, as a preferred sport for the, for the aristocracy, aristocracy um, for the princely classes, um, it's something that really started to, to die out by the end of the 16th century mm -hmm. when these armors were made because of safety concerns. Oh, so right. we have um, in the third quarter of the 16th century the death of King Henry II of France um, as a direct result of a jousting incident. Um, a splinter from a shattered lance actually made its way through his visor and into his eye. And yeah, it was, it was a bad way to go. And so as you can imagine... The elites of, of Europe during the period realized that, you know, to a certain extent, jeopardizing the life of the king in the name of sport was was not necessarily yeah, the, the best form of statecraft. They like our president playing quarterback for the Detroit Lions. Exactly, exactly. And and so by the 1580s, when this group of armors were produced, 
the joust had really fallen out of favor in many parts of Europe, but it survived in Saxony because of the way that it could telegraph bravery, the way that it could te telegraph martial prowess. It allowed princes to perform their martial skills off of the battlefield for an audience that was far broader than soldiers or other commanders. It included ladies, it included members of the clergy, it included the patricians of the towns that they ruled. So it was a really effective way of telegraphing and performing and power. What was different about Saxony? Saxony was, was interesting because it, it was, I think, very important for the electors and, and later the kings from the 19th century onward of Saxony to establish themselves as powerful because they, they really had existed for a very long time in tension with the Holy Roman Empire, particularly from the, the genesis of the Reformation in 1517. We know that the, the Dukes of Saxony were, were early adopters of Reformation thought, were okay. supporters and protectors of Martin Luther. Right. And so in that way, they really did set them up themselves up as um, sort of counterpoints to the Catholic Holy Roman Emperors who were the premier court of the time. Right. And so Saxony, in many ways, sort of developed in parallel to the courts of more well-known rulers like Maximilian I and Charles V, um, Ferdinand I down in Austria. So you get the sort of northeastern German counterpart in okay. Saxony. And uh, so they had a particular interest in maintaining this aura of um, chivalry, of um, martial prowess, and the joust was a pretty good way of doing that. Absolutely. And I would argue that it also has to do with the materiality of the armor itself, um, the sort of materiality of, of martial technology, because Saxony is a center of mining and smelting. And at this time, in the early modern period, it's one of the sort of main industries for which they're known, and also innovation in the metal arts. Um, so, for instance, you know, the Dukes of Saxony, people like Augustus I, um, who actually also commissioned amazing tools. So his wire drawing table is currently on view at the Met in making marbles. Really? Yeah. Um, so he would performatively enact these aspects of metal craft for his court. And that wire drawing table, which is about eight feet long, it's, it's an enormous object, is um, you know, decorated with all of this beautiful engraving and the steel, the, the steel parts of the, the tool, essentially which were etched by the same makers who made the weapons for the court. Okay. And the sides of the table are decorated with marquetry that represents tournaments at the Saxon court. So there's this sort of coexistence, this, this almost complementary relationship between the metal arts, the performance of the metal arts, even by the prince, mm -hmm. and martial prowess, martial skill, and the sorts of constructions of the martial body encased in steel that we see in the armors. Okay, so take us back to the to the armors for a second then. Mm -hmm. So these um, these were made in, you say, in the 1580s. And what quantity of material are we talking about? In terms of quantity, do you mean weight? Or Well, uh, well <laughs> yes, I am interested in, in just how large and thick and heavy mm -hmm. they were, but also how many individual pieces. Absolutely. So we know of at least 35 of these armors existing from the period. Of those, 29 um, remained in the Saxon collections up until the modern era, essentially up until the 19th century, which is, I think, really spectacular to yeah. think about this group of objects. And also when we think about armors, you know, we as specialists in arms and armor really think about armors as individual works. We think of them 
as objects that were made on a bespoke basis in most cases. Luxury armors were made to measure for the princes who wore right. them in, in the moment they wore them. So they really do become sort of an index of a body in that particular uh, Wow, time. right. Oh. You gain weight in middle age and you need a new set of armor. Exactly. Or, or you need to add, add a little bit of steel along the side <laughs> of your breastplate, which we have examples really? of. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it was, it was a group of armors that were made for the courtiers of the Saxon court. So these are not the jousting armors that were worn by the electors of Saxony. They were, they were armors that were worn by members of the court for various contests. And therefore, instead of being like a bespoke suit that you would order maybe from Brooks Brothers, it's more like a really well-made set of, of football pads. Um, right. I, yeah. Yeah. I like that analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, w I was a band kid when uh -huh. I was younger, and I always think of them as being sort of like band uniforms band because uniform, it's an yeah. object that, you know, you select the one that fits you and you wear it for the duration of the time that it's needed, and then you give it back. And, okay. and so this idea of and the then uniform it could be or the sports for equipment. Else. Exactly. Um, so, so they're really sort of unusual in that sense. They exist in this, this gray area between princely luxury armors for the tournament and what we call munitions armors, the kinds of armors that would have been made for the infantry or for the regular okay. fighting men of the period. So they're really special in, yeah. in that sense. And, and, and this is interesting, is it, you know, armor was uh, an, an expensive um, investment. And so these pieces, uh, were they paid for by the electors and then lent to to uh, the courtiers who would have worn them. And is, is that how uh, infantry armor would have worked as well in the, in the period? Um, or would the infantry have been required to purchase their own uh, armor? It depended on um, what part of the infantry you were in and what ver various um, principality or prince bishopric. We have to remember that Central Europe and the Holy Roman Empire at this time is sort of this this complex patchwork sure, of sure. political Hundreds entities of um, alongside, you know, mercenary companies like the Landsconnect forces uh -huh. um, for whom armor was frequently um, a part of the loot that was captured on the battlefield. Right. So you would see people from all socioeconomic statuses actually wearing luxury armors that had been captured. Um, in the case of um, civic militias, people who were defending the towns in which they lived, they were required to provide their own armors. Um, so in many cases, people would be wearing armors that was that were one, two, three generations old. Oh, wow. Um, because it was a very expensive proposition to get a set of armor, what we right. call a garniture, um, so a set of interchangeable pieces of armor, um, or even a breastplate and a helmet for a patrician who's required to have these objects, um, so they would be passed down. Okay. Um, in some cases, um, infantry would be provided with armor. That's the case for the infantry who fought for Maximilian during the North Italian Wars in okay. the early part of the 16th century. So it runs the gamut. In the case of the jousting armors that we're talking about, again, not for battle, um, a different type of object, um, less bellicose, um, but still imposing. Right. Um, these would have been kept in the Saxon arsenal and lent out to okay. the courtiers. So if you were invited to participate in a joust at the court of Christian I, who was likely the, the elector under whom these armors were ordered, or any of his successors, then you would come and be fitted for the one that fit you the best, and then you would wear it in tournaments, perhaps over the course of years, and then give it back to the arsenal. Okay. 
And the arsenal was also the display space for these objects right. because we do have documentations for their display alongside the armors of the princes. So they become sort of a ghostly court in that way. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so how, how much money are we talking about? What would it have cost to, to commission the production of 35 um, sets of jousting armor? That's a pretty difficult question, and I hope to um, undertake some research in the, in the months and years ahead to uncover okay. more of those primary sources. Um, there, there's quite a bit less research on the armors produced in northern Germany compared to southern Germany. So, so when we think about receipts, which are, are really a goldmine for those of mm-hmm. us, um, working really on any form of artwork, but armors in particular, because we're always trying to make a case for the value of these objects during the period that that armors were valued artworks. Um, However, you know, many of the primary sources that we have, which have been discovered by people like Alexander von Weizenstein in the, in the middle of the 20th century by, by my supervisor, Pierre Terjanian, who just undertook the last night exhibition uh, more recently. um, Most of that documentation relates to, the southern German Habsburg courts. Um, there's a lot of documentation for armors coming out of southern Germany, Augsburg, Nuremberg, Austria, specifically Innsbruck, as well as the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Saxon court is far less well documented. Um, yeah, and, and I would love to be able to sort of reconstruct the lives and the, the, the checkbooks of, mm-hmm. of those armors um, someday. Okay, yeah. well, we'll leave that for the next time then. <laughs> We'll be back in just a moment with Jessica Kirchhoff. But uh, first, I want to say thank you, as always, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at Objective Interest. I love hearing your comments and ideas. You can see images of the suits of armor at the magazineantiques.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to help us out a little, you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you're using to listen right now. This makes it easier for new listeners to find curious objects. Thanks so much. Since 1805, Freeman's has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's hosts many departmental and single-owner auctions throughout the year and are always accepting consignments of suitable works across auction and collecting categories. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freemans, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are. Hi, everyone. I'm Don Sparrison, publisher of the magazine Antiques. We've been shaping the conversation on fine and decorative arts for nearly 100 years, and we are still working hard to move and connect you. In fact, we think that's more important than ever in these difficult days of shelter in place. We post new and archival stories every day at themagazineantiques.com. Among our latest, a profile of Will Shorts, the famed crossword puzzle master who also happens to be a collector. On Instagram and Facebook, editor-at-large Glenn Adamson curates the antique of the day. And we run a weekly arts quiz called Name That, where the editors love to track my errors. Our weekly newsletter, Wandering Eye, is a compendium of relevant articles from across the web focused on the arts, mostly. The digital world grows ever richer as we are physically apart. 
and there is a lot to share. So sign up and let us take you places. And of course, we hope you'll subscribe to the print edition of the magazine Antiques. We like to think that the words and pictures on our pages, and maybe even the simple act of holding a magazine in your hands, can bring you a small measure of comfort and normalcy. From all of us at the Magazine Antiques, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to Curious Objects. So, um, so now let's let's take these forward through history, mm-hmm. um, because uh, you said earlier that when these armors were made, we were already at the tail end of the period during which that kind of uh, pageantry was still in vogue. And um, so how how long do you think these armors would have been used in that original, uh, for that original purpose? These are interesting because they, they include design aspects that actually allowed them to be used, quote unquote, more comfortably. They're not, they're not comfortable in the way that we would imagine them to be, um, but but help to increase the safety of these objects so that they could be used um, really much longer than we would anticipate. And that's one of the things that I think is so spectacular about them is that these are objects that had working lives that extended over not decades, but centuries. And we have documentation of, of their consistent use from the end of the 16th century through the beginning of the 18th century, which right. is just really incredible. It really is. And, and it's something that, that we don't have for really any other armor produced during the period. Um, we know that many objects had complex afterlives, mostly as, as objects of display. So, for instance, the hero's armory at Schloss Ambras in Innsbruck was a gallery of armors um, that were presented essentially as heroic predecessors to right. Archduke Ferdinand II of right. Tyrol. Um, but most armors that survive did survive as objects of display, or they survived in sort of different socioeconomic contexts, as I mentioned, as objects that had very long working lives because of, of economic need. Mm-hmm. But these objects, these, these jousting armors from the court of Saxony, survived as both objects of display and participants in, a, in really a working tournament tradition, a, a living tournament tradition that, that would bring them out and sort of animate them periodically throughout you know, 200 years. So by the end of this, so in the 18th century, um, we're talking about a very anachronistic kind of <laughs> undertaking, right? I mean, this is you know not too long before a period of military history that we all have, um, you know, a, a very strong uh, set of mental imagery around, which is the American Revolution, right? And it's not exactly a time of of charging. You know, knights on horses with lances, right? I mean, gunpowder was um, far and away the dominant military technology. Um, what would it have meant for um, for someone to participate in a joust in the early 18th century? Uh, what was the significance of that? I think it continued to be a declaration of of bravery, of martial prowess. It also had to do with lineage, because as you mentioned, it was extremely anachronistic. It was very much about the history of the electors, and at that point, um, kings of Saxony, because this is in the court of August II, the Strong, who is both 
elector and Duke of Saxony, but also King of Poland. Um, so right. he's establishing a broader royal lineage for his family and essentially telegraphing this, this long and illustrious past, um, the chivalric identity that he's inherited. So it's nostalgia. Um, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, that's something when I write about these objects, I think by the 18th century, we can safely use the term nostalgia, but it's so difficult because it happens even by the end of the 16th century when these objects are made. You know, the tournament, as, as we mentioned, is waning. So there's a kind of what we would call nostalgia. Nostalgia wasn't invented as a word at that time. So sure. what do we call it? Um, I frequently use the term culture of remembrance or Erinnerungskultur um, auf Deutsch. So it's this this way of conceptualizing this this sort of backward-looking interest in chivalric lineages that we see really consistently throughout the early modern era, especially in Central and Northern Europe. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, but then at a certain point, mm-hmm. um, even those um, those cultures of remembrance had to give way to uh, the modern age, mm-hmm. and the role of these armors changed once again. Um, so t- tell me about what, what was the next stage in their life after these tournaments had finally ended. Yeah, so I think before we jump off to that sort of culmination of the lifetimes of the objects, I think it's it's important to acknowledge the very last tournament because it mm. really was a turning okay. point. So again, we're in the reign of, of August the 2nd of Saxony, also king of Poland. Um, he performed feats of strength for his court. And he also, like his predecessors, supported the metallic arts. He was very interested in innovation related to mining and smelting. The tournaments in which these objects participated were actually called the tournaments of the four elements. Um, and so they were they were essentially theatrical the four performances. Being earth, yes. earth, fire, wind, and water. Yes. Right. Um, Aristotelian so, style. Exactly. And um, this is within sort of a realm of thought that connects really closely to sort of ongoing scholarship, like the Making and Knowing Project, this idea of the interest in science and the way that the arts and sciences sort of all come together culturally at this time in, in what we would consider the early Enlightenment era. Um, and so these armors that had come from the late 16th century tournament tradition then get sort of reappropriated as representations of the prowess of the Saxon sort of knowledge of fire, the knowledge of the elements, the ability to manipulate natural resources in, in sort of service of, of the dukes and later kings. Um, so, so a sort of celebration of technological achievement yes, or yes. alchemical knowledge or... Also alchemy. Um, it's interesting because this, the same Dukes of Saxony who have these wire drawing benches and other sorts of objects like this, they also have alchemical stoves um, mm-hmm. that, that recent research has, has shown were, were actually used. Um, okay. so, so there's a lot of tinkering happening at this court, yeah. um, which is so interesting because you think about this idea of, of science as a sort of a genteel non-bellicose practice, but then you think about it as it's embodied in the achievements of smiths, like like the armorers who made these Saxon works, um, whose names we know. It's it's like the, the von Speyer workshop, Wolf and Peter. Um, they were the, the Lockheeds and Raytheons of their day. Exactly. Um, and also the Maseratis, because they're objects of desire, they're objects of wealth, of power. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to think about this last hurrah of the armors in, in, in a certain way to be still closely connected to this idea of innovation, of hope for the future. Right. Um, so they really become sort of fulcra between an early modern past and what for... August II in his court was, was sort of an enlightenment present. So 
within four years of that tournament, of, of the tournament of the four elements, um, August talks with his advisors and essentially establishes what is one of the first predecessors of the modern museum. So he seeks to consolidate the collections of the Duchy of Saxony into what would become the Historisches Museum in Dresden, the Grunesgewölbe, the Green Green Vaults, yeah. um, which we all know very well because of, of recent um, events right. and also from the, the Making Marbles exhibition at the Met. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting because these armors and most of the princely arsenal of Saxony immediately get rolled in by 1723 into this larger sort of modernizing what we would consider almost a museum mission. Amazing. So, I mean, really within just a few years after mm-hmm. after they were still commissioned and in use, they're treated as collectibles or museum items, maybe not in the, the same sense that we have of a museum item, but something akin to that. Exactly. And and the room that they had inhabited really since their creation, um, what's called the Ballienkammer in the, in the Saxon arsenal. Um, sadly, that, that building has, has since been destroyed mostly. Um, but this is a space that was intended for the arming of knights for the tournament. It existed adjacent to the tournament grounds, so knights could ride directly out into the lists from from the arsenal itself. Um, But that was a space that really was a display space for its entire life. So when the armors weren't in use, they were hung on the walls. As I mentioned, you know, the mounted armors of the, the Dukes of Saxony were flanked by these ranks of tournament armors that would have been worn by their courtiers. And that space was essentially immediately translated into a display space um, in the early 18th century, where the armors of the Dukes of Saxony could could form, as as, as we mentioned at other courts, sort of an, an armory of heroes. Mm-hmm. It's it's a ghostly lineage, as a standing evocation that evokes the physicality of the predecessors of the ruling family. Who was walking into these spaces to look at these uh, ghostly armors? Many people. Um, So during the 18th century, and really even by the 17th century, you could come on the invitation of of the Duke. Um, So we have these great traveler's accounts. Um, There's one that is is really one of my favorites. It's by Tobias Boyton from 1674. And he describes walking into this arsenal space. And he literally gives us the play-by-play of what you would encounter as you're walking through the space. So he says, you know, there's one white armor, which is the, the steel, the brightened steel, polished armor that we imagine. And then next to that is a black armor, an armor painted with black paint to darken it. So there's there's the sort of rhythmic display of jousting armors in black and white um, that marches through the space. Yeah. And those are, are mounted on the wall behind the mounted figures, which literally are on mannequins, and, and in many cases also with horse mannequins, um, <laughs> of the armors for man and horse of the Dukes of Saxony. Um, so it's a space that that really, I think, for, for people who have been to great collections of arms and armor, maybe in Vienna or Madrid or Innsbruck, um, it's a space that seems very familiar to us. And even if you imagine walking into the, the galleries at the Metropolitan Museum and you're you're met with, you know, some of the great armors in particular, there's a, a 16th century Saxon armor at the head of our equestrian group, yeah. you can start to sort of conceptualize what the space would have been right, like. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so the impression that these armors were supposed to make was supposed to be received by um, perhaps, you know, members of the, the broader public. Um, not just this wasn't just courtiers uh, walking around and telling stories about 
the days of yore. Um, this was also you know, sort of a public display of the strength um, of the regime. It was, and um, from 1832 onward, so it exists for, as we mentioned, from, from 1723 to 1832, essentially as a, a princely Kunstkammer um, or, or art art collection. Um, so we're thinking about it as still very much a node of the court, but a node of the court to which people can be invited to reiterate this this powerful lineage yeah. that, that the dukes and, and later kings are, are, are claiming. But from 1832, the museum is founded as a modern museum. So you get the foundation of the Johanneum, the Historisches Museum in Dresden, and um, that really inaugurates a new conceptualization of those objects because, you know, their, their lives as tournament objects are really long over at that point. Um, and also, to a certain extent, it, it positions them as an inheritance of the state, the, mm. the newly sort of nascent state of Saxony, um, the idea of, of maybe a regional identity. Right. in addition to a courtly identity. But really from that point until the end of the First World War, they they continue to inhabit the space that they had lived in from 1580 onward. Um, so it's really interesting to think about all of these iterations that change conceptually the way that the armors are presented and displayed, but really that remain the same. Right, <laughs> it's, it's really the, the context changing around mm-hmm. them. Um, exactly. The reception is changing, but but there's a an immense continuity in terms yeah, of the space, yeah. and yeah, I think that's that's so unusual and sort of poetic. It really is. <laughs> I mean, it, it emphasizes what's so interesting to me about so many old objects, which is this sense of um, of a continuum between the past and the present, uh, and it's remarkable when an object has stayed in the same place physically, because emotionally, at least for me. Um, that really drives home the point that that object really has been there the whole time. Um, On a recent episode, um, I spoke with a furniture dealer, uh, Frank Levy, who had purchased a set of um, 16 chairs and two sofas that were made in New York um, in the early 19th century. And he bought them out of the family. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of the chairs needed a little bit of restoration so he drove them over the Queensboro Bridge um, to his his restorer. And at some point while he was on the Queensboro Bridge, the thought occurred to him that this was perhaps the first time that these chairs had ever left the island of Manhattan. And that's sort of a, a remarkable thing. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's very unremarkable. Of course, you know, it's... Uh, it's no big deal. You're moving these chairs a couple of miles. On the other hand, you know, just to realize that for hundreds of years, this object has been situated in this particular place as people have lived and died and been born around it. And I think in, the, in that way, those objects that have sort of consistent context, at least spatial context, um, for such a long time, they have sort of accreted layers of identity. It becomes like like geological strata in many ways. Um, Because we think about provenance as a history of motion. When we trace the provenance of objects, we imagine it as the object moving around through space and time. But for these objects that have long histories within a single space or a single collection, 
um, I think it's interesting to think about the ways that personae and events and memories can become imprinted on those objects. And they're no less dynamic for having been in the same spot sure, for sure. hundreds of years. Um, you know, the black armors that I mentioned in the display of the Saxon arsenal, one of those was also acquired by Bashford Dean from the then Prince of Saxony, Ernst Heinrich, in, in 1926. And it has, you know, thick layers of, of black paint, this, which, which would have dated to the period. That's mm. what it would have looked like. But it's been repainted, obviously, okay. over the course of its lifetime. And on the shield um, that protects the jouster's left side, it actually has layers of names painted onto the shield underneath the layers of black paint. Oh, really? So, so each layer is a new name. Is a new name of a, of a user um, who would have used it during probably the late 17th and early yeah, 18th centuries. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it has literally these strata of identity that have been superimposed onto the object itself. Um, so in that way, you know, armors, I think, have a particular ability to become embodiments or vessels for for identity because of this this physical form that they take they become a, a person standing in front of you very easily um, but in the case of these armors because they were worn by successive generations of people um, i think they have you know this amazing depth of of meaning and that's incredible yeah. and they're a lot more durable than um, textiles, so <laughs> makes them a little easier to study. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think the textile thing is an interesting point because, you know, so so many of these armors, particularly the Saxon jousting armors that we're describing, um, tend to be somewhat plain. The surfaces are somewhat plain. Um, people frequently walk past them because because they they tend mm -hmm. to be very sort of clean lined, um, very modern looking. Right. But we have to imagine them during the period because they were surrounded by all of these beautiful textiles and velvets and, and you know plumed crests. Right. And so the material culture that surrounded them was very sumptuous and lush. And so frequently when we see these objects, and I think that's the case for, for silver also, when we look look at a silver tankard and we have to imagine the, the sort of larger visual context Absolutely. that it would have inhabited. Candlelight. Yes. Candlelight, um, beautiful tablecloths and settings and all of these sorts of yeah. objects. Yeah. yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm sorry that the interview ends there so abruptly. Unfortunately, we had an audio issue at the very end, so we lost the last couple minutes of our conversation. Um, so just, you know, try to imagine one or two extra incisive questions and brilliant responses. Anyway, uh, thank you so much to Jessica Kirchhoff. You can find her on Instagram at Jessica Feliz. That's C-H-A-S-S-I-C-A-F-E-L-E-S-E. And uh, again, there are images of these armors at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep podcast binging. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host, Ben Miller.